podcasting from the heart of the Gator Nation in Alachua County, Florida, this is Extension Cord, the podcast of UF IFAS Extension Alachua County, where we plug in and bring UF IFAS Extension to life. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Dr. Taylor Clem with UF IFAS Extension Alachua County. Today, I am here with Dr. Tatiana Sanchez. She's the commercial horticulture agent here in Alachua County, and I have a curiosity, and that curiosity is one reason I brought Tatiana onto the program today, and that is watermelons. I know we're getting to that time of year where you look down out on Newberry Road and you start to see all the school buses coming through town, and they're not filled with kids. They're filled to the brim with watermelon. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And So what is the date today? What is the date? Today is May 5th, Cinco de Mayo. Cinco de Mayo. Mm-hmm, that we're recording. Just to give you a, a timeline perspective of when that starts happening. Yeah. When, when do we, like, I, 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 there's a lot of things I want to talk to us about today about just like watermelons. And I know you're doing a lot of awesome work with a lot of our producers around town. And watermelon is a major commodity that we have this time of year that we see in Alachua County. So I just want to learn as much as I can about that. But when, when do we start to see watermelons come to market from our Florida grown farmers or Alachua farmers? From this region. Yeah. yeah. Watermelons are actually grown all throughout the state. So you might see them in the market. Like Florida-grown watermelons, you will see them at multiple or at like prolonged period of time. Doesn't necessarily mean that they are ready around us. But what we consider the Suwannee Valley area mm-hmm. will be your um, counties that have a very um, large production of commercial watermelons. Mm-hmm. Include Levy County, Gilchrist, Suwannee, Lafayette, Alachua County, uh, and multiple other counties. So collectively, we we refer to this region like the Suwannee Valley area. Yeah, and is is that literally just kind of the Suwannee Valley or the Suwannee River watershed area within this like north central Florida? You're like like yeah. around it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we start in Alachua County planting watermelons as early as late February. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first and second week of March are the heavy planting dates uh, for all of our growers. Mm-hmm. The earliest you plant, the earlier you harvest, mm-hmm. obviously. But the problem with that is your freezes. I was going to say, those late frosts that we get. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. not even just late frosts. Like, if you plant at the end of February, you're for almost certainly going to experience at least one frost. Mm-hmm. So, that. Uh, growers are always gambling. Am Ready I gonna? Yeah, yeah, is it gonna freeze? Mm-hmm. Is it not gonna freeze? Mm-hmm. How bad is it gonna be? Can I protect my plants? How do they determine that? Like, they wh- can't. When you're th- <laughs> it's just kind of like you know, farmers' almanac, looking at what the anticipated like They're what could always, be weather conditions. Always and, looking at know. the weather, but there is no way that you can anticipate a freeze for any certain period of time mm-hmm. like yeah. if if the weather says you know this friday we're going to experience low temperatures you know oh this friday but when do you know that yeah <laughs> do you know that ahead of time to <laughs> say true. like oh i'm going to delay planting for three weeks yeah because no. i know th- i know that like we can get some forecasts that say like the probability of having one more freeze is x percent right but again that's a probability statement it's it's you never really know. You never yeah. really know. 
And occasionally we also have like hail storms and that can beat up the plants. Oh, um, yeah. At the beginning of the season, we get a lot of sand blasting and the mm-hmm. vines are very small. Mm-hmm. So the, the wind just moves those vines around a lot oh. and that can also beat them up. And yeah, they have a challenging start. Um, and so, yeah, at the, be- at the end of February, beginning of March, Mostly during the beginning of March is when uh, watermelons are being planted in the county and mm-hmm. they're planted as transplants. Oh, okay. So they're getting them from like a wholesale somewhere or some of them starting them. How, how are they propagating them? Because I know, is it they're getting them from some wholesale propagation? Because I know we're trying to get the seedless varieties. So we are getting transplants primarily from Georgia and mm-hmm. South Florida in Speedling. Mm-hmm. And you put your uh, request for seeds as early, like Thanksgiving is an important time for watermelon growers, believe it or not. Oh, wow. Yeah, they have to know about how many acres they're going to plant and how much seed they need to purchase to get those transplants ready Mm -hmm. at a specific time. Everything needs to be time Mm -hmm. because there is uh, soil prep, um, the labor that comes with it, the irrigation setup, getting those, those beds wet, so mm-hmm. when the transplants are put in place, they have good moisture for establishment. Mm-hmm. And connecting the irrigation system and all these things, they they are really good with calendars. <laughs> they have to plan ahead yeah. a lot. Yeah, it's not just like, oh, it's March, I'm going to go plant my watermelon now. It's yeah, like, no no, 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 planting is starting months ahead of time. Exactly. Mm, wow. So they're planting them in the ground. Um, they're already in the ground. You know, We've been in the ground for about a month now. Um, maybe a little More over a month, month. Yeah. and um, oh yeah, so two months, just about mm-hmm. two months now. So we're at the point where I know that you're starting to go out on a regular basis to a lot of those producers, and you work with a lot of those producers, really help them out because I know like anytime you're growing something agricultural, um, you're going to run into pest problems, whether disease, fungus insects, etc. You name it. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and I want to come back to that, but you know, we, what's that harvest time? Like how long does it take for the watermelon to grow? So they plant them in March and when do we start to anticipate harvesting? When we can start seeing the school buses start going to market. <laughs> You're really looking forward <laughs> to those school buses. I, I always love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so planting season for watermelon goes from March to April. Mm-hmm. you're going to have staggered plantings, so you're going to have harvest going for a number of weeks as well. Is that done so in case there's a, a frost or something like that, or just to for kind of... For multiple reasons. Yeah, okay. Yeah, um, the watermelons are shipped through um, semi-trucks, mm-hmm. and uh, it's kind of, they need to have kind of like a flow. Mm-hmm. They need to know how much they can handle at one time. Oh, Imagine I see. If all of their acreage so they're come even as balance, in one. They're yeah. even balancing like distributor requirements. Yes. You, and wow. if the price is right mm-hmm. and you have fruit to write that good uh, peak in the market, you're going to make more money. Mm, of I course, see. you want to be the first one out uh, with product to get the good or the high price as the amount of fruit available is low because mm-hmm. it's not in season yet. Um, but if the price is right and you still have fruit to take advantage of it, then that's when it pays off. Yeah. So oh. logistically, and uh, the market also has a lot to do mm-hmm. in how they plant and how much they plant. And 
what type they plant and all of that. Mm-hmm. So last um, May, the May. question to <laughs> <laughs> the answer to your question is May. the end of May on is we'll start when seeing them exactly. Oh, wonderful. So next month, the end of the month, the we'll be there. The That's wonderful. So yeah. I. So obviously it takes a few months before you start seeing the production and a lot of stuff can happen in between that period. And that's where you have a a major role with some of the producers here in Alachua County. What are some of the big things that we see with our growers that impact the watermelon quality or quantity? What, what's, what's some of the big barriers for those producers? There is a lot of factors that play into your yield and your, uh, fruit setup and all of that. I would say pollination plays a very important mm. role. Mm-hmm. They use uh, bees, honeybees, to provide enough pollinators. And watermelon is a very interesting plant. So it's a vine, mm-hmm. and the f- male flowers develop before the female flowers. Oh, so wow. that pollen is ready to go. So Before the that, female flower yeah. opens. So during that short period where that female flower is, um, uh, how do you say, like ready to yeah. be fertilized, mm-hmm. the f- the male flowers are already ready to get a bee, take that pollen and move it mm-hmm. into the female flower. Mm. It's a very short period of time where that female flower is receptive. Oh, wow. And if we have, like, for example, overcast or wind conditions or storms, That'll then that can impact pollination. Oh. And as your pollination gets delayed, your fruit set gets delayed, and your market gets, your your harvest date gets pushed as well. Oh, my gosh. There's so much that's just out of your control with that. So much. And that's just one. <laughs> one of those multiple factors. Um, irrigation. Mm-hmm. Something that we see a lot is, so I mentioned that when they set up the beds. So let me explain a little bit how watermelons are are produced mostly in the state. They use raised beds that they cover with plastic mulch, and they use strip irrigation that goes underneath that plastic. Mm. They Mm -hmm. uh, They place a portion of the fertilizer is granular fertilizer in the center of that bed. Mm-hmm. And then they go and punch holes to put the transplants in. Mm-hmm. And they also use that drip tape to deliver nutrients into the crop yeah. through irrigation. And that's called fertigation. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of the season, when you put that transplant in that hole, those roots are in a very small compact area. Mm-hmm. But growers want this, those plants to establish. Right. So there's a lot of irrigation that happens at the beginning of the to season. To get them established. Mm-hmm. That if not done con- on a, if, if it's not done carefully, what happens is since you don't have enough roots, if there is leaching rains or if there is over irrigation, what's mm-hmm. going to happen is that granular fertilizer that was put, even though it's underneath the plastic, is going to solubilize and be leached leached faster beyond the root zone. Yeah. So at the beginning of the season, if we get storms or if we get extra irrigation, more irrigation that the plants can actually take because of the Mm -hmm. lack of roots they have initially, then that is where our major fertilizer losses can happen. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah. So if that is not managed good in the beginning, then in the middle of the season, 
is when we start struggling to try to catch up with that nutrient requirement that the plants need. Because of what was lost during that establishment period. Exactly. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. So obviously, so that, that's important because watermelon obviously needs a lot of water as part of its development and production, fruit, fruit production, the, um, but just the growth and establishment period. But look, like it's amazing. Watermelon actually, in the beginning, when humans start becoming more um, familiar with watermelon, mm-hmm. watermelon didn't look or taste no, how it tastes today. No, if you like, if you look at, I like looking at um, like old Renaissance still yeah. art. You see, like what watermelons used to look like before um, they were selectively bred. It was so different. How did they look like? It, like little balls, like, you know, like a softball almost. And they, the, the like fruit vacuoles is more of the white than the red. <laughs> so it was whitish, yeah. pale-ish. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The, Didn't look good. The, the genetic <laughs> characteristic that gives it that pink color mm-hmm. is really close to that genetic factor that also determines its sweetness. So over time, but selection for sweetness for sweetness it gets that more pinkish red color. Yeah, every generation of the selected watermelon got pinker and pinker and pinker, and uh, so they changed quite a bit. But the reason why they were picking up those watermelons back in the history of humanity was because in dry areas where watermelons was originally from, like Mm -hmm. northern Africa. Yeah. Um. For being in the desert in long trips, they will bring with them watermelons. They don't need to be refrigerated. Mm. And when they needed water, they would just eat this fruit. And that, that would be good hydrating source for them. Yeah. Can mm. massively accumulate water. Therefore, watermelon. Right. Yeah. And now, if you think of that, the, the ability of this fruit to gather that water and keep it inside when you are producing it, there is this switch. It's mm-hmm. overnight that it, this happens. After fruit set, once the fruit starts enlarging, it grows insane. You can oh. almost sit and watch it grow. It sucks water nutrients like a sponge. Oh, is, Yeah. <laughs> so there is this critical weeks, two or three weeks, that that crop goes from just growing vegetatively, just minding its own business, and the fruit gets uh, set, and mm-hmm. it just goes. Wow! Yeah, it goes crazy. Like it watching just, a water balloon fill up on a hose. Yes. Just <laughs> it just goes. It starts growing really quickly. Oh, neat! So I'm imagining then, when you're seeing like at that pollination period and fruit set, how long does it take? So are you spending more time on that that establishment and growth of the vine? And then it's just kind of towards the end of that growing cycles of that those few months that you start to see that fruit set and growth. Um, so I don't know. Are we seeing that fruit development happen like that last third since a time before plant between planting and harvest? Uh, because not necessarily. How okay. Um, there is a few factors that influence how quickly that happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is the variety. There are early varieties. Mm-hmm. Um, the length of the crop can go anywhere from like high 70s to 100 days. Mm. So depending on the variety that you're growing, the faster or later the, your flowering would happen. Because okay, it's I just see. how the plant mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, is, is advancing through the different phenological stages. 
And sometimes when there is too much fertilizer on the beginning of the season, then those nutrients are pushing that plant to grow vegetatively. Yeah. So you get a lot of vines, but the flowering part doesn't get prioritized by the plant because you're pushing it. It's wanting that to vegetative grow. growth. Exactly. And that can delay your flowering or your fruit set. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it changes a little bit. Um, but at this point, I can tell you it's May 5th again today. And most uh, fields are at half size or beyond half size of okay. the of the size of the fruit. Okay, wonderful. So I know, you know, there's a lot of things that, like, I think about, okay, I have a vine growing along the ground, and there's rain and water, and I'm concerned about fungus disease, and then pests coming in and say, hey, look, a stressed plant, I'm going to come munch on it. What are some of those concerns, or what are those things that you have to deal with as an extension agent to help some of those growers or what are we seeing happen that impacts the watermelon in the field? We have um, common invaders every year. Mm -hmm. Most of our disease problems are uh, fungal diseases, as you will find with most uh, crops. Fungi are typically the ones that cause the most concerns uh, from a plant pathology standpoint. Right. Uh, we have gummy stem blight. That is one of the most common diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the beginning of the season, um, they they do broad spectrum fungicides that kind of keep that disease and mm-hmm. all diseases at bay. But around this time in the season, right after you have gained enough uh, cover and the vines are touching each other and there's these microclimates that start right. showing up, mm-hmm. you start getting powdery mildew. Mm. Downy mildew. Because, like, the circulation has decreased exactly. within them. So they're going to stay wet a little bit longer and optimal temperatures for the growth of the, the mildew, right? right. Is and that kind of? Well, and it's most a matter, temperature has a lot to do with it, but it's mostly a matter of the length of moisture in that crop. That's why mm. you never want to mess with your plants when they're wet. Mm-hmm. You don't want to move spores around. Right. And as the pl- vines grow and are in proximity with each other, mm-hmm. they create these longer periods of um, moisture available, high humidity available, mm-hmm. and that enables any spores to germinate and infect. There is enough period of moisture that the fungus can actually... Has time to grow, yeah. and reproduce, and spread. Yes, mm. and not only that, as at this point, you start seeing more rain events. And as mm-hmm. we approach June and, you know, from that point on, you're middle in the summer, you get a rain in Florida every day. Right, right. So the constant, more like, addition of water into the system, the splashing helps mm-hmm. to move your diseases around. Um, we have uh, fungal diseases that are soil-borne that are also of a concern. Mm-hmm. Some of them are occasional, but we, nine times out of ten, we have fusarium wilt. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a fungal disease, soil-borne, that can really hit um, a grower if they are in fields that have a high amount of inoculum mm-hmm. or, you know, um, high amounts of these 
pathogen present in the right. soil. Right. So, so moisture control is unbelievably important. And, you know, so when you're looking at rain events, how much moisture is available within the soil for the roots to uptake, you're thinking about how much do I irrigate? How often do I irrigate? Um, and I know homeowners think about this a lot because if they're growing watermelon in their backyards, when was their last rain? Do I need to turn off my irrigation? Or, you know, they think about those things. I know that you do some work with some soil probes. Is that correct with some of these producers? Right. What is the role of that? Is that just to be more efficient with irrigation use? Or what are some of those other benefits that we see with that soil probe work that you help do? So if you're a homeowner and if you've used a soil moisture sensor in your irrigation system for your yard, you probably have a very easy output of on and off, or mm-hmm. a cloud or some diagram that you can <laughs> identify and say like, oh, my turf grass needs water. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start my irrigation system. Well, when you're growing a commercial crop in which you have invested money in the fertilizer that is going to feed that crop throughout the season and you're trying to um, make it grow and save money and at the same time don't lose fertilizer and make a good use of the water, The soil moisture sensor, what it does is it gives you a profile of how the moisture is available at different layers in that soil. Oh, cool. The soil moisture sensor goes up to maybe four feet Mm -hmm. in the ground. And you have sensors like every like four inches down, eight, 12, 16, 20, as as many sensors as as you choose to have. Mm -hmm. And if you go beyond the eight inches deep, Right. And you see that the water keeps bumping up the sensor that is below and then below and below. You know that those soluble nutrients that you applied are now beyond the root zone. Oh. Even though there might be roots that could go farther down, the bulk of the roots and all of your feeder roots that are mainly just picking up the nutrients part of the soil profile are the, exactly what is that depth did you say eight is it like an eight six to eight you want to keep them in the four to six but if you go to oh, eight wow. is like mm-hmm. okay you know that you still have roots there mm-hmm. but when you go beyond that is you're pushing your plant to have to look too far down for those nutrients mm. and that is a energetic cost to the plant to be producing those roots that to takes go a fish lot, for those that nutrients. That takes a lot of nutrients that it needs to expel in that root development to get its roots down to that depth yeah. to find them. You uh-huh. want to keep everything tight. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want that moisture, and the moisture goes with the nutrients. You want to keep them close so the plant can focus all of the roots near that source mm-hmm. And put all of that energy and nutrition into what you want to grow, which Mm -hmm. is the watermelon. If they have to grow all over the bed because there is water everywhere and those nutrients have been pushed too far down, then that's at at an expense, of course. There is no free lunches. (laughs) Basic economics for uh, watermelon. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But it's great because they get eyes in the ground. Yeah, so they can see what obviously you can't see. You know, from the typical perspective of any human, you can see what's happening within the soil. You can see how far down you're you're moving your water profile mm. or your waterfront, how far down it went. So you're really looking at, you know, I want to apply water at a certain, is, is, does it help you determine like the certain rate that you want to apply or what, seeing where that water is moving, 
how do we react to that when we look at that data from the soil profile? How does it, it make us change that management? It helps you uh, schedule the length of your irrigation event mm. because you can connect you can connect the environmental uh, factors and then say, okay, I'm getting very hot days mm-hmm. and the one hour and a half irrigation event that I'm doing is not enough. Like I can see my plants being stressed. Mm-hmm. Then, okay, maybe I need to increase my the number of irrigation events. Mm-hmm. But if I'm doing maybe a two hour, two hour and a half event, and you're thinking, oh, I'm really watering these plants, like I'm giving them enough of moisture, they're going to be fine. In sandy soils, that's not the case. Right. So with that soil moisture proof, you can say, okay, I need to tune in my irrigation, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to split the number of irrigation events or add an additional one, Mm. and I'm going to reduce the length. So I'm always keeping those those roots Right where you want them. So it's but a, right where I want It helps yeah. you determine duration and frequency. So do exactly. I need to do it more often or is it a, I just need to increase the duration or decrease the duration? Yeah. Ah. And it's great because, you know, the, the plant grows. Mm-hmm. And when you have the transplant, you are going to have a short irrigation event to fulfill the needs of that plant. Right, because it's just right. Yep. Right there up on the surface, yeah. And <laughs> as you, the crop develops, these soil moisture probes, uh, the programs that they have, adjust the field capacity to uh, the needs of the crop at that point. That's cool. So it, it's pretty much like it grows with the crop. So you oh, can, that's neat. yeah, you can always give the crop what exactly what, what it needs. needs. Yeah. So, where what it does is, you know, when we when I think of a soil moisture sensor from the residential perspective. You know, we just have a sensor within like the top few inches of the soil and it can say what our soil moisture percentage is at that point. And if we fall below that, then it kind of just says, okay, your soil's too dry. You can irrigate now. And, but what this is saying is we're going to adjust or we're seeing where that moisture is at based off of root growth and development. And you can determine the duration and frequency to best meet the needs of the crop as it's growing. Mm-hmm. That's cool. And what is really that cool very too complicated. is that <laughs> because you have sensors at different depths, mm-hmm. you know the roots are going to uptake that moisture. Right. And you can you can actually see where you have roots based on those lines and based oh. how those lines change. So you can, change you can over see time. kind of like a change, like a little bump. Ah, yeah, and you're like, like that's oh, where my I have roots, roots are. down there. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's yeah. um, so. I can see how that's like, okay, I'm using water as efficiently as possible for this crop. I'm making sure I'm using my nutrients as efficiently as I can for this crop. Um, Because obviously for all producers, you're really thinking of at the end, how do I grow this as efficiently, as effectively as possible so I can get the most income from my whatever I'm producing. So understanding those variabilities is going to be important for them to make sure that they have a good crop and they're saving money or using their resources, those inputs as effectively as possible. Yep. That's a lot of work with a little soil probe. That's a little handy, <laughs> handy but tool. But it's been great because before it was, there was a lot of calendar mm-hmm. irrigation. And now with, with the soil moisture probe, you can see where you're at. Yeah. And if there is a storm coming, you know, oh, okay, I can bank that, 
that rain event and how much did that rain event added to my system mm. so it, i mean is it, this it's like really all automated good. or are you just like oh here's my data output and then you kind of make adjustments from there or is there ways that we can look at that data that make it easier to translate it into how we need to change those durations and frequencies at this point uh, and with a crop as quick as watermelons are they still have to make a lot of decisions like on, on the fly yeah, on, yeah. on the fly and the soil moisture probe really helps them to inform decisions inform their, their yeah. decisions yeah, yeah. so yeah. it's still giving them a very strong upper hand in the the production of the watermelon and you know like if you compare a soil moisture sensor from a uh, irrigation mm-hmm. um, domestic irrigation versus commercial irrigation in a watermelon field you have you know, just a few yards of turf grass to irrigate, or maybe you have combined zones right, and you have right. mm-hmm. your um, bedding plants. But in a field, you have typically watermelon blocks are in 40 acres, 60 acres, 80 mm-hmm. acres, depending on on mm-hmm. what land can be rented. They're in about that. An average, I would say, is a 40 acre per field block. Yeah, yeah. And you have to distribute irrigation in these 40 acres. Mm-hmm. So how many different drip tapes, valves, oh, caps, wow. emitters you have there? You have to be checking for leaks. Yeah. You have to be checking for pressure. Shoo. And you send this big hose in the middle of that field. So from that hose, you're going to connect those drip tapes that can go that. like 300 feet, 400 feet on each, on either side. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, there's a lot of checking that needs to still be done manually. Yeah. Oh, obviously. Yeah. So, I mean, there's things that you can use to kind of check, but still, like, little things you could m- miss in such a large system. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. That's 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 really neat. But, I, you know, obviously, the soil probes that you use, this isn't, isn't just exclu- exclusively used for watermelons. I'm assuming, no, yeah, no. they're using it for other things. Um, but I do know, you know, we're creeping mm-hmm. up. It's May 5th, and production and harvesting is going to start towards the end of the month, which I'm super excited about. And I do want to ask you, though, is there a cup there? I know, like, some homeowners are growing watermelon, like, just in the backyard gardens. Is there any recommendations that you have for the backyard gardeners that are interested in starting watermelon or trying watermelon in their yards or as part of their gardens? Because I assume they need a lot of space to grow. Yes, they need a lot of space, and they have to pay a lot of attention to what variety they're growing. Mm -hmm. If there is varieties that have any source of pest resistance, Mm -hmm. either that's nematodes or that's anthracnose or that's another disease, go for the ones that have the best pest resistance possible Mm. because the, the products that they have available are not the same products that could be available for a commercial producer, or yeah. if they're available, it might not be as easy for a homeowner to apply them. Right, because there's some stuff, yeah. it's like, obviously there's restricted use um, pesticides that you can get that home that commercial guys will have available, available to them, but homeowners will not. Um, or some things I've noticed that for homeowners, it is available to them, but it's at a concentrate made for commercials. So it's like a $200 bottle 
of a specific fungicide that isn't practical for a homeowner. So Right. So they want to avoid as many problems as they can mm-hmm. possible. Like in a commercial setting, you're thinking about the market and you're thinking about the time mm-hmm. and you're thinking mm-hmm. about what is it my broker uh, needs. Do I need mm-hmm. watermelons that are this big or that big? How am I going to fill these many requests? Mm-hmm. For a homeowner, it's more I want watermelons that I grow in my backyard that I know I grew them, I saw them, I fed them, mm-hmm. and it's my product. So it can be any watermelon. It doesn't have to fit a specific market. Yeah, because you can trend. get some really fun varieties. Like the, I know there's some varieties, I don't know the names of them, but they'll be like yellow on the mm-hmm. inside. And you just get fun colors. And it's always fun to, kind of like, if you're gardening with kids, show them something that's unexpected within the garden. Like, oh, here's you know, fun color watermelon or here's a fun colored tomatoes, you know. Yeah, so. and you have to have fun with, if you're doing the, uh, these for gardening and feeding your own family, you have to have fun with it. Oh, absolutely. Um, I would encourage them to be very judicious with their nutrient management. Mm-hmm. I know in a homeowner situation, it's not as easy to do cover crops, but that would be definitely something I would ex- like strongly recommend. Cover cropping with the watermelon? No, no, no. Oh, cover okay. cropping as a part of their gardening Annual system cycle. Mm-hmm. to yeah. help keep the weeds down and mm-hmm. to help keep the nutrients in the root zone. Green manure. That's what we, that, yeah, we got, we have some really cool publications. We talk about what are some good summer cover crops for your raised vegetable garden that nice. you just... Till in, help build a healthy, strong soil. Exactly. So um, nutrients is one of the biggies. Mm-hmm. Irrigation, all the same that would apply with commercial guys. They don't, they shouldn't over irrigate because then they're gonna be pushing any nutrients that are available. Mm-hmm. And then in a in a home garden situation, I don't know how many of them will be doing drip. But definitely, I would encourage to do drip if they're growing. Typically, any we're gonna see drip or micro spray, depending, but. Drip is pretty common. Um, yeah. But, yeah, you, when talking about fungus. You like don't want any overhead on yeah. your watermelon. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> if you can avoid it, avoid it. Tatiana, one question I do have is seedless watermelons. How how are they made? <laughs> I know because it's magic. like. Magic. So, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> well, it might seem like magic, but. <laughs> uh, so it's a very laborious process made by the seed companies. And basically, they take a normal watermelon plant, mm-hmm. which is a diploid, like mm-hmm. you and I, mm-hmm. um, meaning they have two sets of chromosomes. Two sets of chromosomes, mm-hmm. yeah. And then they treat them with a chemical that is called colchicine. Mm-hmm. And what it does is that it enables that the number of chromosomes um, double within one cell. Okay. So you end up with a... A tetraploid. A tetraploid, ah. exactly. <laughs> now you have four sets of chromosomes. And now that tetraploid plant, they they cross with a diploid, a regular watermelon plant. Mm-hmm. So when that diploid and that tetraploid plant cross, you get triploids. Your seedless ah, you watermelons. Right in the middle. Exactly. Your seedless watermelons mm-hmm. are triploid watermelons. Mm-hmm. And that is the one that is planted mm-hmm. to um in the field and it the won't triploid and it won't create the seeds so in the, in the field yeah you put a you can put a diploid in that tetraploid in that diploid cross they are not the seed is not viable mm-hmm. so there is no seed production you end up with fruit 
but you don't have you don't seed have with seed. It. Ah, so and you then, have yeah. a, a diploid has the normal two sets of chromosomes. A tetraploid has four sets of chromosomes, and when you mix them mix them together, you get the tet the triploid, which is the three sets. And that three set, when you plant that seed, doesn't have viable seeds. Doesn't seed. create the seeds. Mm-hmm. Shoo! Who figured that out? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> hey, but that's cool. More power to them. Of course, you know, it, there is the nostalgic part of watermelon seed spinning contest and like all that stuff where you can't do that with seedless watermelons. <laughs> True. <laughs> but it does probably make watermelon eating contests a little bit easier because you don't have to deal with the seeds. <laughs> well, that wouldn't be a contest then. <laughs> That's true. That's part of the obstacle making it harder is having to deal with the seeds. <laughs> but uh, anyways, Tatiana, I know that, you know, we're coming up to the point where watermelons start to be harvested, start coming to market. And I'm always excited about this time of year because I love getting – watermelon at the farmer's stands and the farmer's markets and especially the ones that are coming from our growers here in Alachua County is always a big bonus but the floor uh, fresh ones but do you have any big notes like this is the neat thing about watermelon and why you know it's not only just a tasty fruit but why is it important to Florida well it's one of the major commodities of the state if you didn't know that um, see and I don't think many people yeah. I you know I when you think ag commodities I think citrus you know yeah i think maybe like sugarcane livestock but no, you know when florida you... is a big player in watermelon production that's awesome you grow it from the south all the way to north central florida uh, something that i want to bring to your listeners attention is the amount of effort and labor that goes into that watermelon mm-hmm. um the watermelon is for the most part uh, on your more Typical farms, they're planted by hand, mm-hmm. even though we have um, some machines that help. Uh, they see two guys in the back, and they're, you know, they're dropping the, those transplants. That's still by hand. And then the, there are some other parts that require labor, labor, but the harvest part, lifting up those watermelons out of the ground, oh. checking which ones are mature, which ones need to stay there for a little longer, all of that is done. By, by hand. By hand. Wow. And they throw those watermelons from person to person until it reaches that beloved school bus, school bus <laughs> um, to go into a packing shed where they get rinsed and they get uh, sorted out by by size and then mm-hmm. put in big boxes and they shipped out of the farm. That is a lot of effort. Yeah. And I, I want you to acknowledge that next time you go for a watermelon, just. There was a lot of hands involved in the production of that fruit. They add a lot of respect to the watermelon and the growers. So when you have that watermelon, that's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. And imagine the freezes mm-hmm. being out there checking on your temperatures at 3 in the morning and checking for, for bugs and checking for nutrients and checking for diseases is a is a 24-7 job. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That's hard work. I'm glad we got people that love to do that and they do yeah. such good jobs at it so something cool we do that we do with some vegetables and in some herbs as well is sap testing and that's mm-hmm. like um when you go to the doctor and they take some blood and check yeah. check your levels that's mm-hmm. exactly what it is 
but sap like for watermelon. S A P sap. Sap. Yeah.、Mm-hmm. And what I do is I go and I check the end of the runner of the end of one of the, the line arms of that line,、mm-hmm. and I search for the most recently mature leaf,、mm-hmm. and I detach、mm-hmm. it, and I collect like maybe fifteen twenty per per fill, and I. Detach the blade of the leaf. I only leave the stem of that leaf, and I I cut it with a knife, and then I squish it with a very、um, complicated tool called a garlic press, <laughs> and I squeeze. Like, out. I know where you're going. <laughs> I know the garlic press. <laughs> yeah, so I squeeze out a few drops of the blood of the watermelon plant into some soil probes.、Uh, sorry, soil probes.、Um, That meters that we have,、mm-hmm. and then I can check for how much nitrate, nitrogen,、uh, or potassium that plant has. So you can、it、do pretty quick assessment assessment of the nutrients availability, like within the plant, not、exactly. just soil, like a typical、right、soil test on、mm-hmm. site. That's awesome. Yeah, and based on that, we can we can make some informed decisions of should we. Uh, increase the amount of fertilizer we need to apply this week in our fertigation system, or are we pushing them too fast?、Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah,、wow. that's something pretty cool. I, wow, I like that part. A handy tool, the garlic presses. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I、um, Tatiana, I know we we run out of time, but、um, I want to thank you for joining us today to talk all about watermelon. <laughs> you know, it, it, my pleasure. I love. You know, I think I was pretty excited to bring up this topic to you. I was like, let's talk about watermelon, Tatiana. Yeah. <laughs> but、um, obviously, I want to thank you know you for the work that you do with those producers, as well as all the people that are involved, the farmer, the farm hands, everybody that's out there working from getting the food grown in the field. And out to market because that's a lot of work. Thank you, thank you for for that, Taylor. And I just want to make a plug for a book, a field guide we have coming up at the end of this month, and it's the watermelon field guide. Oh, cool!、Uh, yeah,、uh, it's produced by the UF IFAS Bookstore.、Mm-hmm. And if you want to learn more about watermelons, how it's grown in Florida, what are the diseases, pests,、cool. or weird things we see out there,、mm-hmm. all of the pictures are from extension agents. Up here in the Swanee Valley area, and it tells you all about growing watermelons in this region. So、uh, look for it, or ask your extension agent, and we'll make sure you have one in your hands. I'm gonna go buy one. Yes, <laughs> one. I'll buy. I'll buy. I'll buy ten. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make sure I have one for my office and the master gardeners. But、Good. Tatiana, thank you very much, and、um, I look forward to seeing the school buses arrive <laughs> and really enjoying the watermelons this year. Yeah,、so. three more weeks and you'll see them all over、Ooh. town. All right. <laughs> okay. Thank, thank you, you, Taylor.